0: This morning we resume our study of church jargon, of these terms that often appear in biblical study and spiritual conversations, but rarely make their way into our everyday conversations. And if you haven't been with us in this series, we're we're calling this series Church Words because we want to understand these terms that may be foreign to us. And we want to be able to communicate the meaning of these terms so that when we employ our knees, if you will, we won't leave those who are unfamiliar with these terms in the dark. And so we've been investigating terms like atonement, which is a very popular uh, word to use in spiritual conversation. Uh, And two weeks ago, we looked at the word predestination, which might just be the most controversial of all the church words. And today, we're going to look at what I think might be the most confusing church word. And if you noticed in our scripture reading, it was probably easy to pick this church word out. Because it is the word propitiation. Propitiation is this unique term in scripture I want to start off with this. How many of you have ever used the word propitiation in a sentence? Raise your hands. Brody? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All right. It's one of those words that never gets used. It doesn't even get used in English language hardly at all. And yet it's this word that appears four times in the New Testament. Four times, in all of those occasions, it's referring to the saving work of Jesus Christ. The first appearance you'll see of propitiation is in Romans chapter 3, in a very popular passage within the book of Romans, where after telling us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, where uh, Paul writes about Christ and how he, we've been justified by, by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Then you can skip ahead to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, and verse 17, you'll find the second instance of this word. Where in reference to Jesus, the author of Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the last two occurrences of this word are both in 1 John. The first is in verse 2, which we read a moment ago, where it tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10, after telling us that God is love in verse 8, John then goes on to describe that love or to reveal how that love is evidenced. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Those are the four instances you'll find that English term translated in the New Testament. But that doesn't really tell us what propitiation is. So let's appeal to some English dictionaries for just a moment. Just a a cursory review of what propitiation means or what the definition of propitiation is using Google search will yield these results. This is from vocabulary.com. It says that propitiation is the act of placating and overcoming distrust and animosity. If you continue on to a better source, let's go to uh, the Britannica Dictionary. It will tell you that propitiation or to propitiate is to make someone pleased or less angry by giving or saying something desired. If we continue on to the Cambridge Dictionary, the act of pleasing and making calm a God or person who is annoyed with you, and in the ever-reliable merriam webster Dictionary, the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something. You know, it's precisely these definitions that have made a lot of scholars uncomfortable with the concept of propitiation when it comes to our relationship with God. That's because many of these definitions of propitiation Make God sound needy and petty, hostile and and even volatile. Much like the pagan deities. The pagan deities who got their feelings hurt and had to be pacified in order to prevent them from reacting vindictively. At least that's what people thought. The people that worshipped, worshipped those pagan deities. That's their perspective of how they acted. But just because that's the perspective of people who worship little g gods that aren't real doesn't mean that that's how the true God, the Lord God, operates. The Lord God is not needy. The Lord God is not petty. The Lord God is not hostile or even volatile. When it comes to Him... His wrath is holy and righteous and just. So when we start considering what propitiation means, we have to start there. You have to realize that propitiation implies appeasement. We can't deny that. If you looked at those definitions with me, they may have sounded very human, in their definition, but they all related to some sort of appeasement. And that is a part of what propitiation means. We cannot deny that the Bible identifies God, God's reaction to sin as wrath. Sin elicits God's wrath, it's undeniable. Do you remember that whole golden calf episode in the Old Testament at the base of Mount Sinai? It's recorded in Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. Meanwhile, the Israelites get annoyed because he's been gone so long. And so they go to Aaron and say, hey, make us a god. And Aaron gets all of their gold jewelry and melts it down and crafts this golden calf. And the next day we're told the people rise up to worship this golden calf they engaged in a lot of immoral activity along with that idolatry and do you remember God's reaction to their sin if you go over to Exodus chapter 32 verses 9 and 10 he communicates with Moses he tells Moses hey go get your people he doesn't even employ the language of my people he it's it's like that time it's like when your parents one of your parents gets so mad at you That they start referring to you as the other parent's child and not theirs? That's your daughter. That's your son. Not mine. God does that right here. And then look at what he says to Moses, particularly in verse 10 here of Exodus chapter 3. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Their sin elicited God's wrath. If you skip ahead to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter nine, verse seven and eight, Moses reminded the Israelites of this episode and, and part of his farewell communications with them. And, and this is what he said: He said, "Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord God, the Lord your God, to wrath in the wilderness." From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, and Horeb is another name for Sinai, even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. God's reaction to sin is wrath. On this occasion at Mount Sinai, his anger relented. But unfortunately, Israel's sins continued. And throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath is consistently associated with His response to their wickedness. Just go do a word search in the Bible for wrath and anger and see how many times God's wrath or God's anger is directed at Israel. And it's so very interesting because then we arrive in the New Testament and we have this word propitiation. And in particular, The first occurrence is in Romans chapter 3. And as Paul prepares to define the saving work of Jesus on the cross in terms of propitiation, he makes sure his readers will be able to associate it with God's wrath. Because that word appears in the third chapter of Romans. But in the first chapter of Romans, you get down to verse 18 where Paul declared that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in chapter 2 and verse 5 of Romans, he warned that those who judge others for their sins will, while practicing the same thing, those who judge others for their sins while doing those very same sins, are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul writes about God's wrath. In chapter 2 of Romans, Paul writes about God's wrath. In chapter 3 of Romans, he presents the solution to God's wrath. Propitiation. The appeasement of that wrath through Jesus Christ. You see, propitiation is all about calming, placating, or appeasing the wrath of God. That's its ultimate meaning. That's why when you look up the def- definition of those Greek words that are translated propitiation, they all make reference to calming or placating, or appeasing the wrath of God. But how is God's wrath appeased? Well, we'll just go back to those four verses where propitiation appears. In Romans chapter 3, it's connected to Christ Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, you might have to go all the way back to verse 9 to find uh, the the subject for all of those prepositions, for all of those pronouns where the word he appears. But you find out that the he in verse 17 is a reference to Jesus, First John chapter 2 and verse 1, we find out that John is talking about Jesus as the propitiation. And in chapter 4 and verse 10, you can see it right there in the verse that the reference is to God's Son as the source of propitiation. And the point is this, that in all of these verses, the appeasing of God's wrath was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. That's how propitiation occurs. That's how God's wrath is stayed it's by what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus' propitiary function can be compared to a heat shield. Now hear me out. In the simplest of terms, a heat shield is an outer covering on a spacecraft designed to protect it from the heat generated during re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. In other words, a, a spacecraft's heat shield protects the vessel and its occupants by either absorbing or deflecting the heat that it's experiencing. In the same way, Jesus deflected the wrath of God away from us by exchanging our sins for his righteousness as alluded to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. See, that's the beauty of propitiation. That's the beauty of this appeasement angle of Propitiation. We deserve, we deserve to face the full force of God's wrath. But Jesus faced it for us on the cross. So that we can instead receive the full force of God's mercy. What Jesus did at Calvary was deflect God's wrath away from us and put it onto himself so that we can stand before God one day and receive only his wonderful, powerful, beautiful mercy. That's the beauty of propitiation. Jesus deflecting God's wrath onto himself. But we need to acknowledge something. Propitiation isn't just about appeasement, even though that's what you're going to find in the English term. If you really go back to the Greek term involved behind this word, you're going to find out that it's more than appeasement. It also involves atonement. Now, i got to tell you, I have a pet peeve. One of my pet peeves is when a dictionary defines a term by using that term. For instance, when I was looking up definitions for propitiation, one of the standard places I will go is dictionary.com. I'm certain some of you have used dictionary.com before. Its definition of propitiation was this, the action of propitiating. That doesn't help me any. I'm trying to get a definition for a propitiation and you're going to turn around and use an alternative version of it in the definition? That doesn't help me. And I have to admit the fact that I'm standing up here today and saying this church word propitiation implies another church word atonement feels kind of like the same thing. Because just three weeks ago we spent our time of study focused on the word atonement. But the reality is there's a lot of overlap between these two words. In fact, some English translations, particularly the New International Version, they choose to substitute phrases like atoning sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement, or make atonement, instead of propitiation in the four passages we've been studying today. You see, there's connection here. There's connection between propitiation and atonement. And while propitiation does include this idea of appeasing the wrath of God, it also includes the idea of atoning for sins. We've already noticed that propitiation appears in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, but there is another passage in Hebrews that employs a propitiation term without translating it as such. You see, Greek words can have multiple meanings. And so if you go over to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5, you'll read this. Above it, a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. I've highlighted the word mercy seat on there because in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5, the Greek word that's translated mercy seat is the same Greek word that's, that's translated propitiation in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. And the reason this word is translated mercy seat is because it's an obvious reference to the mercy seat. The mercy seat was that part of the uh, temple complex, that piece of furniture in the temple complex that covered the Ark of the Covenant. In all fairness... The mercy seat is, is treated almost like a separate object from the Ark of the Covenant. But the two are connected because the mercy seat goes where the Ark of the Covenant goes, and vice versa. And the reason this term that gets translated propitiation elsewhere is translated mercy seat here is because in the Septuagint, Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was around during the first century. Quite likely, a a translation that Paul himself would have used, that Jesus would have been familiar with. But in the Septuagint, the Hebrew term for the mercy seat was translated with the Greek term for propitiation in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. In other words, the mercy seat. In the Greek language, was called propitiation. Now, that might feel complicated to our minds. But you have to remember the purpose of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled the blood of animals to atone for the sins of the people. And in that process of atonement, what does or what occurs? (laughs) The wrath of God is satisfied. On the day of atonement, when that blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, not only are sins forgiven, but the wrath of God is deflected. And so we have to acknowledge that propitiation is occurring On the Day of Atonement, it involves two factors dealing with God's wrath and removing sin. And so, when you get to the Greek language and they're looking for a word to translate this mercy seat, propitiation was the term they essentially chose because it made the most sense in their minds, in their theology. So in the mind of first century Jews, this term translated as propitiation was associated with the object that physically covered the Ark of the Covenant and symbolically was the place where the sins of Israel were covered. Now if you think back to our study of atonement, it was pointed out that at its core, atonement means to cover something. The word for atonement was used in reference to the pitch that covered the exterior of Noah's Ark. It was used in reference to a census tax that God instituted, which he indicated covered their debt for him saving them. And atonement was used in reference to the cleansing of a leper who had to be covered by sacrificial blood and oil to achieve that pronouncement of clean. That idea of covering, which is associated with atonement, is evident in the mercy seat. The object, the piece of furniture that covered the ark, and symbolically was the place where sins were covered. And when we talked about atonement, we emphasized the scapegoat's role on the Day of Atonement, how he carried away the sins of Israel into the wilderness. And now as we consider the word propitiation, we find it tied to the mercy seat. And just as Jesus could be compared to that scapegoat because he takes away the sins of the world as John the Baptist declared in John chapter 1 and verse 29. So he can also be compared to the mercy seat because his blood cleanses us from all sin as 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says. So this term translated propitiation. It connotes more than appeasement. It also connotes atonement. Propitiation conveys the fact that God's wrath has been stayed and our sins have been forgiven. All through the substitutionary death of Jesus. As one author said, the death of Jesus removed sin and satisfied God's holy anger. And both those concepts are found within the word propitiation. Propitiation. And as we draw this lesson to a close, I want to take you back to a couple of the passages in which propitiation appeared. First, there's, there's 1 John chapter 4, and verse 10. And the context there is where John declares that God is love and then went on to describe God's love by saying, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I also want you to remember Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, where we're told that we're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In 1 John chapter 4, God sent his only son into the world. And in Romans chapter 3, God put forward Jesus as our propitiation. Both passages present God as making a deliberate decision to employ Jesus as his agent of appeasement and forgiveness. God made a choice. God, whose holiness is angered by sin, but whose love does not wish that any should perish made the choice to provide propitiation through Jesus Christ. God knows that you and I cannot appease his wrath on our own. God knows that you and I cannot remove our sins on our own. And so God who is holy, God who is just, God, who is righteous, took it upon himself to initiate the process by which his anger would be deflected and our sins would be removed. It's God's deliberate decision to offer propitiation. That's the beauty. Propitiation was achieved because God made a loving choice. And propitiation will be received only when we make a humble choice. Let me take you to one last verse. It's in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13. And it's another occasion where one of these Greek words that gets translated propitiation appears, but is translated differently. And it's in the context of a parable, in particular the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus told this parable wherein he contrasted a self righteous Pharisee's prayer with a humble tax collector's prayer. And in verse 13 of Luke 18, Jesus described this tax collector as praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That phrase, be merciful. Comes from the same Greek word that's translated propitiation in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. It's a humble request by a sinner for God to propitiate, for God to remove his anger, and for God to remove his sin. but it's a request that can only be made and received by the humble. And it reminds me of something I heard about the Red Cross years ago. The Red Cross was an instrumental medical organization during World War II, and one of their most important contributions was a national blood donation program that collected 13.3 million pints of blood For use by the armed forces. Now, according to legend, the Red Cross developed a couple of rules associated with these blood donations. One rule was that blood would be made available to anyone who needed it, regardless of whether they were affiliated with the Allied forces or the Axis powers. And the second rule was that the name of the blood donor would be provided to the recipient so that he or she could personally express his or her gratitude to the donor. After a while, after information regarding the Holocaust came out, a custom developed among the Red Cross medics in Europe. If a German soldier came under their medical purview, they would search through the donated blood and intentionally choose blood that came from a donor with a Jewish name. They would then inform the German soldier that their medical condition necessitated a blood transfusion, Blood was available for them to use, but the blood came from a Jew. Then the medics told the German soldiers they had a choice as to whether or not they would accept the blood. And many gladly accepted whatever blood would save their life, but but some refused because of who it came from and died as a result. Again, that's a legend. I don't know if it's true or not but we are not unlike those German soldiers. All of us face a life-or-death decision. A life-or-death decision that can be resolved by accepting a blood transfusion, that can be resolved only by accepting a blood transfusion. Eternal life is contingent on whether or not we're willing to accept the shed blood of a Jewish donor. And the question posed before you today by this term propitiation is, are you willing to accept that donation? Because that's the only way God's wrath will be diverted. And that's the only way your sins will be removed. If you need to accept such a donation today, you can do so by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water wherein you come in contact with the blood of Jesus. If you need to make that decision today, we invite you to come. While together we stand.